Hi, I'm Robert Martin, and this is the Men of Magic Podcast, a one-on-one interview with the best that Magic the Gathering has to offer. Welcome to another episode of the Men of Magic. I'm Robert Martin, and tonight... I'm joined. Hi, I'm Robert Martin, and this is the Men of Magic Podcast, a one-on-one interview with the best that Magic the Gathering has to offer. By Mike Flores. Hey. Well, let's go right away to my first question about the use of technology and how it's helped you in Magic grow your base of followers. So are you talking about specifically on Twitter or in in what context? We'll start with Twitter. Uh, Okay, well... I think that the way I approach using Twitter is just much different than the way other, let's call them, like, magic influencers. Um, I think on an earlier episode of The Men of Magic, uh, Luis Scott Vargas said that we're not really celebrities, right? We don't get stopped in the grocery stores. Correct. Um, maybe Luis doesn't. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I think I approach it a little bit differently than everybody else, so... Um, I'm not a broadcaster, like, I just don't, like, broadcast out, like, whatever I'm having for breakfast. Although, I will often take pictures of what I'm eating, uh, if it's exciting, and I'll share it, or I'll share, uh, sometimes things that, uh, that my kids are doing that are, that seem to be fun, uh, and, and so forth. But I use it mostly, like, to interact, and so I often ask questions, and, uh, people answer, and if I like their answers, I talk to them, and, you know, oftentimes people talk to me and I, I talk back, which is uh, maybe not entirely unique, but I, I try to do a pretty good job of that. For a long time, I was also following most of the people who followed me. Um, I thought that was courteous, but yeah, I don't really follow my stream, so it's kind of irrelevant if I'm following someone or not. Um, but you know, I think my approach is just different. Um, and that's how I think of technology. Technology is just a different way of doing things. I think I do something a little bit different from how other people do, and then the the interaction that you get from from other Twitter users flows from that. So the one thing that's unique about Twitter is that literally you can say something and get an instant reaction to it right away from numerous people, which is an advantage, especially you ask probing questions, and that's something that can be very beneficial if you're trying to write an article or if you are looking for thoughts on ideas or stuff like that, it can be very quick and very easy for you to get the answers you're looking for. Let's go to our next question. Who are some of the people that you've worked with to help them grow within the magic community? In what context? Like any context or uh, in terms of tournament play? or? Well, I'm looking as far as growing themselves within the magic communities for reputation and helping them go from being a small fish into a bigger fish to be able to connect with other people in the magic community. Like the biggest example would be like Patrick Chapin, right? Uh, like I, I helped him get his spot on, on Star City Games and, and, you know, uh, another one would be like uh, Anthony Alonji. Do you know who Anthony, Leo, Anthony Alonji is? No, I apologize. I do not. He's probably the greatest casual managed player of all time. He used to write on the Mothership. Uh, he wrote on Star City Games. But I gave Anthony his big break uh, when I was editor of the Magic Dojo. Uh, he just wrote in an unsolicited article, which I still have in my old Yahoo account, uh, in the archives of my old Yahoo account. I will keep it forever. And it's uh, basically the um, 
So that, and then, you know, more recently through social media and so forth, I guess I helped like uh, Joey Pasco and, and Big Head Joe and KYT and those guys um, just by kind of being around and, and chatting them up on Twitter. And I think maybe in the case of Joey and Joe, giving them some some encouragement. Um, I mean, they, they give me a lot of credit for the growth of UMTG Taps, and obviously they've leveraged that to things like SCG Live, but I think that uh, they probably had a lot more to do with it than I did. It also helps that you have someone like yourself who is well-connected in the community to get, you message something like that, it hits many, many people, and those people may turn and go, oh, if he enjoys this, therefore I might want to give them a listen or really like Joey's work, therefore, if I see him on SCG Live, that's as great because then now I know who he is. It can be a benefit both ways. It's probably fair. You've talked about being opinionated as a writer and a podcaster. Is this your ability just to have better information than others? Well, I mean, certainly I have better information than the average person. I probably have better information than almost everybody uh, in, in the magic community. Uh, and I think that part of it is I've always been pretty willing to share that. So I think that's probably part of it, which is not to say that I'm right 100% of the time. When I wrote my Ravnica cassette review, I said compulsive research was constructed unplayable. And I've, I've won most of the tournaments that I won during that time period with compulsive <laughs> research in my deck. So it's not, it's not exactly constructed unplayable. So, I mean, I'm not right all the time, but yeah, I think in general my, my information is better. Part of it is because um, I, think I pretty much just don't do what everyone else does. Uh, there's like a basic principle in life that, unfortunately, most people have missed. And uh, so uh, I think Patrick Chapin might have been the first person to point this out to me, but I've been behaving this way my entire life anyway. So... Uh, Let's say you need like financial planning. You get absolutely no edge from working with a financial planner who basically just does what you know the book says and you know oh trends are like this. You have exactly the same information as everybody else. So you can actually only do better at anything in magic or life or whatever uh, by having different information. And I mean sure sometimes the information is not as good, but you cannot you cannot succeed if you have the same information. So. The thing that I always kind of chuckle over is, you know, people are like, oh, you got to play these kind of decks, or you got to like net deck, or you got to, you know, make choose this, whatever. And it's just like it's it's silly. They're like, well, of course, you know, Jund is the best. Look at all the top eights Jund puts up. Look at all the people who made play Jund who didn't make top eight. There's a heck of a lot more people in the room who didn't make top eight than the you know the three people who did. So it's it's a kind of a terrible argument if you think about it like that. Well, you proved your point earlier when it came to Exarch deck. Everybody else was playing Cobblade. And the deck was very good against Cobblade. That's some of the things you talk about being having advantages over other people by using different information to make it work. Well, honestly, though, I think I think at least at the time, I mean, even I modified the deck later, but I think at the time it was the best version of the Exarch deck. It was like much better than the three-color versions, I thought. Uh, but I mean, it's not difficult to see that that's a more powerful strategy than Callblade. Like, Callblade's nuts thing is that on the fourth turn, they can be attacking you with something that has a sword on it, and then they might, and then, like, you know, you have to untap their lands and play Jace or something. You know, that's, that's a pretty powerful fourth turn. 
but by the same token, you know, they're setting up that play, and even if you're on the draw, you can, like, just play an Exarch and tap their dude that they intended to attack you with, and all they've done is tap all their mana out. You untap and then do infinite damage to them. Like, infinite is much bigger than anything Cobblade can do. So it's it's really not difficult to determine that this is a more powerful strategy. And, you know, it's not like it was a secret strategy. Um, but, you know, uh, even even just before the the bannings occurred, you know, there's still very good players. Like, oh, standard is solved, you just play Cobblade. It's actually not true. I mean, I mean Cobblade is the greatest standard deck of all time, but I, I honestly think that... Uh, if the format had been allowed to progress normally, we would have not seen, you know, the traditional Cobblade deck continue to be as dominant as it had been previously. And at the very worst, we would have seen Twin Blade become the, the Cobblade deck of choice. Is it one of the things about Cobblade that made it such an incredible deck is the fact that it required guided in the hands of someone who knew what they were doing? You can't just pick up Cobblade and be overly effective with it. Yeah, Cobblade is is not an unskilled man's deck. I think that that would be fair to say. What we used to say about Affinity is that um, anybody can like win games with Affinity, but it's actually pretty difficult to play Affinity perfectly. Like anybody can pick up Affinity who has a basic understanding of the interactions between Arcbound Ravager and Disciple of the Vault, and they, they could they could kill you with reasonable regularity. But you know even getting the last 15% out of Affinity, which is a pretty sizable amount to not, to not have access to. You actually have to be pretty good. Um, you know, the same's not true for Dead Guy Red. Like, when they let you play with Fire Blast and so forth and Standard, I mean, people who could barely read were winning PTQs. The, and you know, it was just so high variance and so low skill. And the thing is, like, those decks would get blown out also by available sideboard cards, and then other people who were like, oh, I'm so prepared for Dead Guy Red would still get bent over by uh, by random Chumley. That's what they used to call people, random Chumley, back in 1998 with the Dead Guy Red deck. And by contrast, you're playing Callblade. Like, anyone can understand the basic power of Callblade, right? Like, Stoneforge Mystic is a, an unambiguously strong card. It does, a, it does exactly what you want in Magic. It draws extra cards and it saves you mana. Your Jace the Mind Sculptor it's not hard to see that card is, is bonkers, and, and Squadron Hawk is basically... It's, a, it's better than an Ancestral Recall with regards to the amount of card advantage it generates, uh, at least the first one. So, I mean, it's not, it's not hard to see these cards are powerful, but to get the most out of the cards is, is pretty significant. And I think, especially as the format got to be more and more about beating other Cobblade decks, uh, there was a good deal of deck tuning and... and uh, and customization that that was driving what it meant to be a Callblade player more than just like oh this is this is the seventy five that Callblade is. I, I don't think that was true even towards the middle months. No, uh, Edgar Flores and Edgar Flores and Jerry Thompson were constantly tinkering with the deck. Uh, Jerry was trying to go three colors with it with a red and a black experiment, and then it seems like everybody came back home to the basic white-blue version of it. That was just because of Mortar Pod. So the the red versions were had a strong advantage in the mirror match, but they lacked uh, four tectonic edge, and many of them didn't have any tectonic edge. So what ended up happening is that when it became obvious to everyone that you just play Mortar Pod as your second, your second piece of equipment, then the red was outmoded because, like... The whole point of like the 
the lightning bolts or the cunning spark mages was to stop the opponent from being able to equip squadron hawk with sword of feast and famine. But then once you had mortar pod, you know, you just like tink and you do the same thing and you didn't have to add another color. Um, and obviously later, uh, once, once we had like spell sky completely, I mean, mortar pod's a joke when there's a spell sky in play and then batter skull, of course. So those two cards coming in with new Phyrexia again, changed the game, but, Adding colors wouldn't have wouldn't have saved you if you're just a cobbled strategy. You know, you want to add color and, and splash splinter twin. That's a different story. Isn't that one of the things that made Spellskite such a powerful card? Is that the fact that it can be played anywhere, and it is such a game changer when it comes into play if you're playing against a certain opponent. Well, if we're talking about pre-bannings, I think that Spellskite was pretty overrated. I think like the first week he was underrated and. People were, were not properly prepared for him, but um, at the point before the bannings happened, I think that he was really only really good in Twinblade. Like when, as an Exarch Twin player, I play against a variety of Spellskites in, in different, seemingly good decks. So it was just pretty irrelevant. Like when I say it, it just had no effect on the outcome of the game. Like you could draw two Spellskites, so I mean, still get blown out. Like uh, at the at the Star City, Star City Championship in, where was it, Indianapolis? Yes. I, I was, like, playing matches, and people were, like, so happy looking at their opening draw, and they were, like, Spellskite, Spellskite, and I still beat them on, like, the fifth turn. And it, it just does nothing. Like, the, the suite of cards that we could proactively play against those cards were, like, uh, Ratchet Bombs and Jace the Mind Sculptor just wasn't good enough. But if you play Spellskite in Twinblade, it's a different story, because... They can pressure you with the with the Stoneforge Mystic part of their deck early, and then also basically make you tap a whole bunch of mana to not get blown out by Stoneforge Mystic, and maybe take care of the Spellskite, and then you can get them with your Exarch Twin combo. So it, it changed in in that sense. But yeah, I actually never had problems with Spellskites out of just straight other Exarch Twin decks. It was only only in Twin Blade, but it's good against Red. Like uh, you know, you couldn't have paid me to play Red then. Like I, your opponent goes second turn Spellscape, third turn Stoneforge Mystic with a blue open. I just don't know how you'd ever win. It's just so impossible. Like, they might even have like a spell snare. Influence in the magic community can be different depending on who they are. Is it more important as a writer to have results to guide the writing or the content? Well, I, I think that there are a couple of different ways that you can approach this. Um... Well, part of it is what niche do you want to be in in the in the magic writing community? Uh, if you want, if you only want to write casual or you want to write things that you think are funny, you don't have to have any results, right? But if you want to be like a taken seriously as a strategy writer or a deck designer or something like that, no one's even gonna no one's gonna publish you, let alone anyone reading you and taking you seriously unless you have results. So. It's, it, that from that standpoint, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg standpoint. Like, say I'm just like random dude off the street, and I want to be the next you know, fill in the blank, Patrick, uh, Patrick Chapin or Patrick Sullivan or or whoever, um, you know, well-regarded strategy writer. And you know, you you come up to Star City Games, you're like Steve Saden, I'm the best, I make the best decks, and he'd be like, what decks did you make, dude? And then, no, trust me, I'm the best at making them at my kitchen table. You know, if you don't have the results, nobody's going to listen to you. That's that's uh, that's position one. Um, but 
amongst the subset of people who are getting who are getting published, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a lot to go with. Style, content, how you write, how well you write, etc. That's what sets the that's what sets the elite elite writers over just other writers who are also you know making a living and so on. Isn't there logistically a handful of elite writers out there right now? Yeah, I mean, there's like less than ten, I would say. I mean, there's like a completely different level than most of the other writers. And that probably influences why certain websites can be pay websites for their content because some of their content is just exceedingly better than other content you can get on Freeside. Well, I mean, in my opinion, we live in a capitalist society. I think that that, that must be true, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there wouldn't, these things that you're intimating about would not exist if they weren't true. Speaking of influence in the magic community, is there someone in the magic community that would have a larger influence than a professional would? When you say professional, you mean like a someone who slings cards, like yeah, so you know, like Luis or Adam Yurchek, fill in your favorite pro. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's lots of people in the magic community that are more influential than individual professional players. I mean, I, I think Luis is a bad example. Luis is a publisher, right? Luis wields a massive amount of of, uh, of influence in the, in the community from being a publisher. Now, if you want to say that he got to be the job of being a publisher because he was amongst the best Magic players, you know, at that point, yes, that, that's also true. But, I mean, are you asking, like, do you think a like, regular dude Magic writer could have greater influence in the community than, say, some some guy who like has a whole lot of top fours and grand prix. Yes, that's also possible. Yes, that's what I'm looking looking for because I think in many ways there could be someone or some people out there that have the ability to reach people in a different way than say a professional can write an article and connect to them. Well, I mean, I, w- I would look at it like this. To me, you know, we we talked about Twitter a little while ago. The thing that's inspiring about Twitter to me, and actually inspiring about how social media has connected us on the internet um, and how information travels and the kinds of information that travel today in all different niches, not just in magic, is that I think that we're moving away from a world where pedigree is required. So look at even what you're doing yourself. Um, you know, you're a podcaster and you've managed as a podcaster to, to uh, attract a, a great number of, you know, in, in in our niche, anyway, you know, big celebrities of the, of the, the magic community. Yep. And there's basically no barrier to you, right? Yep. You know, 20 years ago, this would not have been a possibility for you. Uh, that's a function of technology. But regardless of, of how that works, uh, we, we live in a world where pedigree isn't required anymore. In order to be influential in the world, in order to have people listen to you, in order to make your mark in some way, shape, or form, you don't necessarily have to go to an Ivy League school. You don't necessarily have to have a certain job or a certain degree or, or anything like that. And you can be considered an expert at something. Um, and when we look at, let's say, a really good example would be, let's say, Joey Pasco. Joey just decided he wanted to go make a podcast with his buddy Big Head Joe. And they just worked at it. And they have no pedigree at all. They don't even have any tournament performance that, that makes them, ex, let's quote, experts in this field. But they have a passion, and they share with the world that passion, and it's so genuine, and, you know, you can see 
especially in, in the case of Joey, how like good-hearted he is and how earnest. And he has a, a platform that's available to him due to technology to reach a ton of people. And he has, he has no barrier. He doesn't even have the barrier of having to have like a pro tour top eight. It's not even relevant to the world anymore. And not only does he reach thousands of people, because he's, he's elevated himself from being like one of, I don't know, how many dozen small podcasts there are Correct. on MTG Cast, to being on the front page of Star City Games today, we're recording on a Friday, and, and being in uh, a regular commentator on SCG Live. But he has a vote for the Pro Tour Hall of Fame that is twice as powerful as the vote of any pro player with a hundred lifetime pro tour points. That's amazing. That is amazing. Like, if you look at it like that, and a year ago, you know, you're just like, Dirtle Dirtle, was hanging out on his small podcast, and it's, it, he's not, the, he's not the only one, right? Like, yeah, but, I mean, that's how I look at it. You don't have to have, you don't have to have any pedigree in order to have influence today. And when I say that, I'm not denouncing people who don't have pedigree. I think it's cool. Like, uh, for me, for example, uh, I'm an elite magic writer, and I'm a, an elite magic deck designer. I have no Pro Tour Top 8. Um, it's, it's not required. But the one thing about it is is that if you, like Joey, and like yourself, if you work hard and you really have passion for what you do and it relays to the people that are either reading it or listening to it, it can make all the difference and provide the credibility that the quote pro has because he top date or won a tournament. I have a rule. We never talk about hard work. Someone says to me, when I'm uh, interviewing someone, I mean, interview people and they're like, I'm a hard worker. That's like a, I put like a big black X next to their name. I don't want to hear that someone's a hard worker. I'm not interested in people working hard. You can work really, really hard and have utterly no results. You can work really, really hard and, and have negative results. To me, hard work, to, to me, a particular level of work is the minimum. And that's expected. We don't say anything past that. Like, screw hard work. What matters is that we get a certain kind of results. So, like, just, it's not that a pet, pet peeve of mine. It's like more of like a life philosophy. Like, if you ask me, do you work really hard at X? And, like, my answer would probably be yes. But we never talk about it. It, it can't be what we talk about. Part of what makes someone good at something, I think, is that when it's conveyed to everyone else, it seems effortless. We'll get back to Joey on that because you figure he has never done live event ever. He went from doing that, he had no experience in legacy, and now he's managed to, in this short little time frame that he's been on SCG Live, he's managed to be considered one of the best ones on there and he's got his legacy knowledge up enough that he can sit there and commentate without looking like he's stumbling through it. And I think that shows his true passion for the game, along with the ability of being able to instantly connect to the community. Hey, pretty obvious I'm a, I'm a Joey Pasco fan. You're not going to have to sell me. There's an example of someone who just made it happen because of his natural desire to be, to be great, and that's one of the things that I think I appreciate when it comes to him. But speaking of those people that you know through Twitter and other media, who are some of those people now that are your friends because of that? Joey, Joe, Taya Steele, uh, Thomas Dodd, 
there are tons of people who have, like, guest commentated on, on guest blog, either on Five Flores, like, you know, Thomas Dodd, uh, Benjamin Botts. I mean, there's tons of people, like, like Kelly Reed, John, uh, John Medina, all people I, I would have never known before, except for Twitter. I mean, um, KYT, Smitty, I mean, I'm often appearing on videos with those guys. You think how the power of that can really connect you in ways that you never thought of. When I drove to Grand Prix Toronto 12 hours and stayed with Scotty Mack of the A-Team because of Twitter. And I think that's a powerful thing to do. I literally hired someone over Twitter uh, three years ago. There's been some changes going on with the Pro Tour going private next year. What advantages do you see that for players and people that are watching it? So, I mean, this is speculation to me. Uh, so, so please don't say, oh, Mike Flores said this. I'm just guessing here. So um, by constricting the Pro Tour and making it to go to a private event, I think that would allow allow uh, Watsi's team to provide a different level of coverage. So, I mean, people have been asking for video coverage. You know, like if Star City Games can do this, why can't they? I think maybe it'll allow them to do that. Um, I, I mean, I haven't asked, I mean, not even BDM. I've actually never ever asked him about this even either. But that's my guess. Like why, why else would you make it smaller? Especially when, you know, things like, was it Paris? Was the Magic Weekend? It was like, seems so successful to me. And everybody was really watching it. There was so much attention revolving around the match, you know, between Nelson and Yom. just seemed like they went out of their way to provide better coverage, which is something I think that if it goes this way, could be really good for everybody watching it. My, I mean, my guess is that it's just going to allow them to, to do a better job of the things that they're already doing a fine job. After speaking to Joey, every episode of the OMTG Chaps, he said that when you and Chapin talked about lightsabers for an hour, <laughs> why did that work so well for listeners? One thing, Patrick and I are both fundamentally interesting people, right? So uh, I think that's part of it. And another part of it is, like, um, I hadn't seen Patrick in a while, and we hadn't talked in a while. And, uh, you know, we it's just two old friends having a hilarious conversation about, something that everybody likes, which, you know, everybody loves Star Wars. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, we're both really passionate people, and I think what makes us in particular successful at magic, in whatever you want to define success as, like, uh, I, I don't have any Pro Tour top eights, but I think of myself as very successful in magic. Does that make any sense? Um, that uh, we... Uh, we can we have the capacity to share the passions that we have, and we can talk about something at a relatively high level. And it's combined with the fact that we're just really good friends, and we have a you know comfort level developed with each other over the course of 15 years of a relationship. Uh, that I think it, it's much the same reason why I think Brian David Marshall and I do a good job together on on top eight magic. You know, like we uh, we have a very conversational sort of podcast and Brian can rein me in and yeah that's it's pretty it's pretty amazing you know there anybody who can could contain me but Patrick is one of the only people who can out enthusiasm me so I mean, like it's two bulls hitting each other in the middle of a ring <laughs> speaking of you at top 8 magic you guys literally record anywhere 
And it, there are times where you'll hear jackhammers and fire engines go by. People don't mind it. Is that just because of the relationship you two have and the way it flows with the show? I mean, I think part of it is if we didn't have the best content, people wouldn't tolerate it. Like two podcasts ago, it was just a windstorm. And the fact that there was like so many people were coming on, commenting on the windstorm, but they were like, I listened anyway. I mean, it kind of tells you what, uh, what's going on. Like, for, I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think we have the best magic podcast. Uh, and the reason is, first of all, I think we talk about awesome stuff on a consistent basis. Second of all, like, we're both, you know, luminaries of, of magic in, in our own ways. Like, and, um, you know, pretty much talk about like cutting edge stuff, not, not just necessarily like cutting edge technology, but things that are inter- actually interesting to large numbers of people in the game. But the, I think that most importantly, uh, we have, we have like a tunnel into like an insider world to the game that, that many other podcasts don't have. So like I can have a conversation with someone and then, you know, BDM can ask me about it and be like, oh yeah, and such and such, really well-known magic celebrity said this about that. And I think that people really like that. They like to have a feeling that they're that they're connecting with something that, uh, maybe a kind of information that isn't readily available in other areas. Does that make any sense, Robert? Like, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a combination of, like, we're really good friends and we get along well and Brian can contain my whatever noun you want to put there. <laughs> you know, relentless, rampant, you know, uh, egotistical, whatever it is. He can contain whatever noun you want to put at the end of the sentence. But, you know, we're both interesting, you know. And, it, you know, make no mistake, Brian David Marshall is a, a professional writer. You know, he's brilliant at what he does, and and he sculpts conversation really well. There's a reason why he has the position that he has in the world in terms of, you know, magic and being a pro-tour historian and so forth. Uh, I mean, we're, we're obviously going to put out a product that that is a a certain quality level in terms of content. And I think because of that, the annoying things like jackhammers and, and wind tunnels and meeting in the train station become part of the charm of our podcast, whereas in a in another area, it would just be annoying. Actually, sorry, I don't mean to ramble, but it was actually pretty pretty humbling for me um, where I did a recent podcast with my friend Mark Herberholtz, and I was playing kind of the BDM role, and I'm awful at it. So, I mean... Listen to it. Like I often say, like I like any podcast that I'm on. Like I listen to all the Top Eight Magic podcasts, even though I live them. You know, uh, or you know, I like listening to uh, to those. And it was a little hard for me to listen to the Mark one because I don't think I did a great job being BDM. And you know, that was humbling to me. And I'm like, oh, if I want to do something like this in the future, I'm gonna have to try to work on that a little bit. So the funny thing about that is one of the episodes I remember most of noise and it wasn't noise it was the fact that i think one of you went to the bathroom <laughs> yeah, yeah, i did brian said he was pausing the podcaster 30 minutes like, later so he was just like like playing moto and came back <laughs> we didn't even edit out that i remember that that was at like <sighs> two top eight magic offices ago that was like pretty awesome i think that would turned out well i kept I listened to it and I thought, okay, wait a minute, maybe I just missed something and I, re- you know, I went back and I kind of like paused and all of a sudden you hear this little, you'd hear some noise and that was probably him playing Moto and all of a sudden it's like 
I so I fast forward and also like click there you're back on talking. It's like that's thirty minutes of time. That was nothing. It wasn't thirty minutes. It was like three minutes. I remember this one. I don't know. It sure seemed like thirty to me, but maybe that was because you were you were listening to Brian David Marshall click a keyboard for thirty minutes. You should be shot then. You're too stupid to be in the population. Hey, now wait a minute. That's no, you, you, it. Wasn't thirty minutes. It was like three minutes. Okay, so it's exaggerating a little bit, but my thirty minutes. But no one would believe you. It's like not believable. Someone who listened to someone typing for thirty minutes should literally be removed from the gene pool. Oh no, that's why you fast forward and it's nothing there, and then you fast forward again and it's nothing there, and you go back and thinking, well, what happened? And you kind of do this back and forth game until you actually get someone talking. It was like three minutes. All right, all right, I'll give you three minutes on that one. Maybe five. Maybe five. Okay. You've also said anyone can make the pro tour, even someone like me with all the commitments I have. How come? Because you can. There's like, what's limiting you from making the Pro Tour? You decided that you can't make it. Yes, if you decide you can't make it, you're definitely not going to make it. But I mean, like, yeah. what do you, like, you have a wife and three kids, right? Absolutely. Congratulations. I have a wife and two kids. I can make the Pro Tour if I wanted to. It's not, it's not that hard, you know, to win at one tournament. I, apparently, you can go to Comic-Con and stand in the audience one day and be on the Pro Tour the next day. So, the... Uh, yeah, I'm just saying it's not impossible, and you shouldn't be like, oh, this is too hard. It's not. Some of the poker players have been talking about Twitter, about how long it would take to make the pro tour. And let's use an example of a poker professional that would like to try to make a crack at it to see if they can make the pro tour. How long do you think it would take for someone like that who has the expertise in cards? Well, it depends which, I mean, I don't know which ones you're talking about. I, I don't know this conversation, but, um, like, I do know that there are people who are, like, pretty savage on the Star City Tour or uh, are Grand Prix ringers who've only been playing for a few years total. You know, like, literally total. They've only been playing maybe three years, and they're, you know, cashing it at Star City events and making top eights at Grand Prix, so... Certainly within that kind of a window. It depends on how much time you want to put into it. Um, magic, it, it also depends on how good the people around you are. So, I mean, I think that if you like, take some random dude and you stick him in John Finkel's apartment, and he plays with the Finkel drafters like three times a week, he would be a lot better than if you took random dude and you stuck him in, you know, playing random one F&M draft every week. He's gonna, he, his ability at limited is going to be quite different. Um, but let's just use someone that can get connected to better players and work in those circles. Let's think about you for a minute. Let's say you want to be a person. So let's talk about constructed because I pretty much only concentrate on constructed. Um, I actually, I think that my lifetime record at winning PTQs and actually doing, making money at Pro Tours and Grand Prix, I actually do better at limited, believe it or not. But, um, I, I really primarily focused on constructed at this point in my life. Uh, I think that you could, you know, if you knew a format, work on the mastery of a particular deck and, you know, pick the right deck. Or, you know, uh, I, I, this is something I actually quite often do in, in tournaments where I'm successful. Is I play a variety of decks uh, or I switch to a different deck, like, right before the tournament because of what I perceive to be trends in the metagame. And I, like, make top eight or win the next day. Uh, I, I think that you just have to, you know, play a bunch. You can play on Moto, 
put some practice in, you'd be more than good enough, I'm sure of it. There's no reason why somebody somebody who you've never heard of can become a moto ringer and then be a pro tour player six months later and you have been playing like more than 10 years wouldn't yes. be able to play the same skill. It's just where you put your focus. And the other thing is you have to be willing to limit your, limit your, the, the scope of your universe. Uh, that's how I think about it. The, uh, like the, the primary thing that I think that a lot of people have not gotten past in Magic, and I'm going to say that, I mean, I wrote this article the first time in 2003, I think, and John Finkel said it well before that. Uh, like, there's just one correct play. Everything else that's not the correct play is a mistake. And when you hear someone say the word judgment call, that person's just lying to themselves. There's no such thing as a judgment call. It's the right play and mistake. You make a mistake, you suck it up, I made a mistake. So that's the only acceptable response to making a mistake other than trying to not make that mistake in the future. You have to strive, strive, strive to make the right play as often as possible. And I'll give you a really, really easy, uh, really easy parallel to this. So in any game of magic, you're posed any number of stacks and you can play different lands and so forth and you have tons and tons of different options on what you can do. I think that the best players limit those options to a smaller number and then choose the best one amongst a small number uh, rather quickly. Now, if you're standing at a street corner, there's many, many things you can do. There's more things you can do standing at a street corner than, than you can at any given stack in a game of Magic. Now, I don't know anybody who's rational, who would think that amongst the the valid choices that he can make standing at the street corner is to stand and, you know, to walk forward and into traffic and get hit by a bus. I mean, like, like oh, you know, I think this is a completely correct thing to do. I'm going to go walk in front of an oncoming bus. No one would do that. Yet in Magic, players are doing that all the time, and they're like, oh, it was okay. It was a judgment call. It wasn't a judgment call. You jumped in front of a bus. To learn from your mistakes. And how often do you observe people doing that, whether you're practicing with them or you're actually observing in yeah. coverage or something like that? I mean, I think it depends. Like, uh, first of all, I'm by no means a perfect magic player. But, uh, I mean, I think the average player probably makes the wrong play 75% of the time, something like that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was that high. Finkel says I make a mistake a turn, and I'm good enough to play on the Pro Tour. So, like, that's, I mean, I, I make a mistake a turn. And there's some turns that you make very few decisions, you know? <laughs> that's my average. I'll give you an example. There's a player who came in second, I'm, I'm a good friend with, who came in second in a pro tour. If there is, what's the name of the guy who's a Kyrian Ranger but flying, flash, and protection from blue? What's the Scrib Ranger, is that the name of it? I believe so. If there is a Scrib Ranger on either side of the table... That player will make probably about six mistakes a turn. I'm not exaggerating. We make a massive number of mistakes. Just having a scrub range turn. Um, when Odyssey was legal, like, I would mentally collapse if my opponent played a second turn Wild Mongrel. Like, and think about Wild Mongrel. Every single time you discard a card, there are any number of correct or incorrect things that you can do. Should you discard a card is a question. Should you discard a card now is a different question. Of the cards that you should discard, if you should, in fact, discard a card, which one should it be? Does that card have a special ability? If so, should you use it? You know, like, there, I mean, there's tons and tons of opportunities to make decisions. 
when there's a card like Wild Mongrel or Archon Ravager, like these abilities, these permanents that have persistent abilities. Uh, it, actually, now that you ask the question, Jace the Mind Sculptor is a really, really good one. When I'm watching even the top tables of like a PTQ level play, I think that the average amateur player uses the wrong, the wrong ability on Jace the Mind Sculptor probably in excess of 75% of the time. Yeah, I think that they, they probably 80% of the time they use the wrong ability. Wow, that that is phenomenal. He has four abilities. That's a lot, and they use the wrong one. He's the wrong one four times out of five. A lot of it has to do when you see them play on SCG Live. It really depends on what their board state is or what their hand state is, depending on what they try to do. In the head, they'll start fate sealing to try to dictate that they're not getting any cards. They're and ahead. If you're ahead, you should pretty much usually fate seal. Yeah. Can't really lose. <laughs> the, the, the one thing I really love when someone fate seals in that situation is they'll fate seal, they'll just look at the top card, and they'll just casually put it down like, yeah, that card is going to do nothing for you. Your next turn is pretty much useless. I've always found them to be fascinating. Well, I mean, I think that there are some underutilized Jace the Mind Sculptor abilities. Like, it might be correct to fate seal, but they fate seal the wrong player. I think fate seal myself is an underutilized ability. Um... And I think that most of the time, the correct ability to play with Jace is actually on summon. And people just don't even consider it. They're like, they over-brainstorm for the most part. Like, a huge number of Jace brainstorms is not actually that exciting. Like, depending on where you are in the game, the, there are lots of other things that you could be doing. But, like, bouncing a Lotus Cobra is actually pretty pretty correct. You know, there might be a Primeval Titan if you don't bounce the Lotus Cobra. People are like... Oh hum, brainstorm again. Or the other thing is like they want to protect Jace and then they fate seal. They fate seal in a position where even if they fate seal, Jace is dead. Uh, and you know they should have brainstormed in that case. Or another one is uh, people attacking Jace when they're not supposed to. Like when I, I qualified for nationals last year playing a Jace deck, the only reason I won game one is my opponent overvalued Jace and attacked it. If uh, if he hadn't attacked Jace, I'm pretty sure he would have won. How one card can cause so many different issues on both sides of the table, from the person who controls it to the person who's trying to work around it or to remove it from the game. Yeah, I think I think Jace is probably like the second highest skill testing card of all time. It's pretty, maybe the first. It has four abilities. None of them require mana. So. Like, when, when abilities require mana, then you have a different amount of resource, requ- uh, you know, your thinking even requires, requires you to, to, uh, think about resource differently. Um, so, like, maybe there's an ability that requires you to use a lot of mana. So, if it's wrong to use that ability, you can be like, oh, I'm disincentivized from using that because there's a lot of mana required. Or, there could be, like, some subtle or complex play that's the correct you know, a subtle or complex sequence, rather, of plays that's correct for this turn. And if you use a, a medium amount of resource to do it, then someone might be like, oh, it's like a puzzle, and they can put together the puzzle. But because all of Jace's abilities are free, they're like, oh, these are free. So they're, all of them are good. <laughs> like, any one of Jace's abilities is good. <laughs> Yay, it's good. So they're like, oh, I'm going to do something good. Yes, I agree, you're going to do something good. But, like... Did you do something that was right? (laughs) That's a different question. Let's go into your event that's coming up. You're going to the TCG Players Championship, and we just talked about decks. 
and deck designs. Have you picked out a deck yet? No, I have not. I made a deck this morning, but I haven't played it one single game. But I kind of feel like it's awesome. Like okay. Lauren Lee sent me a she sent me a text yesterday. She asked me a question, and so I didn't actually make the deck that she asked about, but I made a different deck that's kind of like it. it just seems so awesome to me. It's uh so. I don't know. If I'm playing some wackadoodle deck, you heard about it here first, I guess. <laughs> All right, so then I look forward to seeing that next week. Is what oh, it might not be what I play. <laughs> oh, sh- what it was yet, so. oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to. It's it's too it's, it's too early. I don't know if it's any good. Let's get into a debate, I guess, that's been raging over the years. and uh, It's Finkel versus Kai, and who's the best, and why is Finkel better than Kai? So you're assuming that Finkel is better than Kai, or are you just assuming that I'm going to say Finkel is better? I'm assuming you're going to say Finkel's better than Kai. I I, I prefer John to Kai. Okay. Um, I've seen both of them. Play. I mean, ironically, most of the time that I've seen Kai play in real life, he's losing. So that will color my perceptions. Oh, you're like, like the jinx of Kai. Like the, like the most memorable Kai matches I have are like when Mark Herberholtz completely outplayed Kai at Pro Tour of Philadelphia, which was awesome. You know, like, there was this one, like, extended Pro Tour where, like, Kai was playing this, like, Dragon Reanimator deck. And, like, his deck, you had to, like, jump through a whole bunch of hoops. And I'm like, okay, now that you've jumped through all those hoops, what do you get? And he's like, I don't know, like, a three-turn clock. <laughs> I was just like, what's up? You're Kai. I need you to be Kai. Um, whereas, uh, you know, John's John. Uh, I think I like John better. I mean, Kai is... Kai is the epitome of someone who put in the 10,000 hours, you know? Like, he, he put his shoulder to the grindstone, and because of that massive number of repetitions, especially in a time period that other people probably weren't putting in the same number of repetitions that he was, you know, in time equals skill, then he was the best. But John is like a superman. He's got superpowers, um, he's like he went from being the best magic player in the world to being the best blackjack player in the world to being a hedge fund manager. His brain's like a computer. His eyes are like cameras. He, uh, I, we, we would we would go to a like when I was in my twenties, you know, I'd go to a bar with John and he'd be like, "Want to see something cool?" He'd be like, "This is how you pick up chicks." And he'd like give you a deck of cards. Be like, pull one out. You like pull out a card and he'd like look at the deck and tell you which one was missing. Like he. He can track things in in a way that regular people can't do, and his decisions are so forthright. And his capacity for the ridiculous is actually also it's surprising for a player of his level. Like like you wouldn't ex- you wouldn't be surprised if Adrian Sullivan does something like completely like off the wall stupid seeming. But when John Finkel does it, like it's right. <laughs> like, John Finkel like sides in a Dromad purebred for his 41st card in his limited deck, and then you're like, why would anyone do that? That's pretty stupid. But then John like explains to you why it's right, and then you're like, oh yeah, it actually was right, and like, something like that. It, it, it's it's just it's unbelievable when John does it. Um, they used to Kai Bob Dursley. If you give on the same situation, they're going to make the same play like 85% of the time. But then Randy Bueller will say, but when John diverges, it's because John is right. And 
the reason is John is it's like we were talking about earlier. John has better information. Like if John diverges from the play that Bob and and Kai and Dirk are all going to make, he has a reason for it. Why did John decide to quit playing competitive Magic full time? He didn't. I mean, well, I mean, he hasn't played competitive Magic quote full time for probably more than eleven years. Uh, he was he was in school when he was the U.S. national champion and the world champion, and then uh, he started doing his own thing a little bit. Uh, and, you know, the time commitment of, of doing what he was doing, you know, playing blackjack and so forth, and he couldn't just go to every Grand Prix. Uh, and then, you know, he has responsibilities to the world now. Is it because the money's not good enough? Based I mean, on the time you commit to it to the make mo- money? The out? money's not good enough for anyone. Like, if, if you want to go... Eric Taylor once said, if you want six words that will explain to you how to make more money than being a professional magic player, here they are. Do you want fries with that? <laughs> the money's not good enough for anyone. The, uh, the, what's great about magic isn't, what's great about even the pro tour magic isn't that you could be playing for money or that, you know, you could, like you have to win you have to win all the pro tours to make $100,000. Like, not do well, to win all the pro tours. Winning every pro tour in a year is much harder than almost any other path to making $100,000. Like, it, I, I mean, to me, like, the question is the money isn't good enough now. Like, nobody plays Magic exclusively for the money. Like, I mean, obviously all of us like money, but that that's not, I mean, you don't play Magic full-time for the money. I mean... I don't, I don't anyway. <laughs> well, I never even tried to. The, uh, uh, I think that there are people who claim that they play Magic full time for the money or so forth, but most of the people who get away with that are actually Magic writers, not, not, uh, uh, not, they don't, they don't derive their entire livelihood from tournament winning. So, for example, Jerry Thompson, I think it was on, it was on the A Team, uh, podcast, he said, uh, you set yourself up as a professional magic player. You set yourself up so that you have your li- uh, your lifestyle. You know, you you have you derive your income. You know, maybe from something magic related. For example, Jerry is an elite magic writer, one of the mo- one of the most popular best magic writers. And um, if you win tournaments and you win money in tournaments, then you're just rich. Like I think, like that's that's uh, that's how he approaches it. These opportunities that we have as professional magic writers weren't really available to John's generation of professional magic players. Like Steve Ullman and Schwartz, for example, someone who I hope hope really hard he's gonna make the Hall of Fame this year. He said that, you know, he would go tra- he was one of the first international travelers from the United States to play on the Grand Prix circuit. Steve would go come in second in a Grand Prix and then lose money on the trip. And honestly, the money isn't good enough for anybody. Not from that perspective. There are a lot of like there are a lot of things that you can do to make more money than being a magic player. I think everyone who, who plays magic seriously and you know can win money at it is doing it because they love magic, not because they love money. Look at it this way. Who are some of the people that you've known over the years that have basically left playing magic to move on to something else because of the money? Well, I mean I mean the short answer is everybody, right? Like yeah. Like, there's nobody who just, like, I mean, that I can think of who was like, oh, they were a professional magic player when I started, when I played my first pro tour in 1996. 
and just continued to just just be a professional magic player since then. Like some of the really good ones, like Randy Bueller or Aaron Forsyth, went on to, or you know, Mike Turian, Eric Lauer, Brian Schneider, went on to be uh, members of Watsi R and D. And among those, some of them moved on to do other things. Um, people like Chris Pakula or John Finkel, who got, you know financial-related jobs, or people like Gary Wise, who's a writer for ESPN now. Um, I mean, David Williams is a famous poker personality. I mean, I've known lots of the greats in terms of in terms of magic, in terms of, like, well-known magic players from the Pro Tour. Very lucky to have some, some even of the elite magic players um, in history as good friends of mine. I don't think anyone really is just like, I'm a professional magic player, and I'm going to stay a professional magic player, and that's my only thing, you know, for... For so on, I, I don't know. I, I think that I would guess that you'd be like completely burned out and and so forth from it. Like Dave Price, for example, is one of the first people who really just tried to be a professional magic player. Yeah. And um, I was like really good friends with Dave. Like when he was on that, right after he won Pro Tour Los Angeles in 1998, and then um, we hung out a lot in New York um, when he was here. And, we had the same job for a while, right? So Dave was the editor of the dojo, and then I was the editor of the dojo after him, and we shared a lot because of that, and you know, we were really good drinking buddies uh, back when I used to do that. And he said, the thing that's rough, and by the way, you know, Dave went on to be a, a magic editor, right? Like, he, he was an editor of the dojo, and then he went on to do other things later. But you know, the thing he said about it when he was trying to be a professional magic player was, and this is a guy who's a pro tour champion, he took away the big check. Yes. So, like, you know what sucks? Showing up for work and not getting paid. And <laughs> you know what sucks even worse than that? Paying, like, in some cases, thousands of dollars in travel fees to show up for work and then not get paid. Because Magic's not a reliable source of income as a tournament player for anyone. No, because the GPs, you get paid so little to win. But even the Pro Tour, like, there's... I mean, I certainly couldn't couldn't sustain my family on I, I don't think that like I would have to have Kai years every year to even get in the, the range of what I would need to have in order to like live in New York and have a family and I mean no only Kai has Kai years those years right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just like you know and I, like I said before you know there are people who are like oh I'm a professional magic player but they subsidize their magic playing significantly with magic writing. You know, I think it's it's uh, it's only fair to point that out that uh, that a lot of these guys are, and I would guess that a fair number of them make you know make more as as magic writers than they do as magic players. Well, you hope so because between the flights and the hotels and the food and the entry fees and all the other stuff you have to pay for, going to a tournament is not inexpensive, especially for the travel overseas. And that you're talking about going if you go to a GP overseas, even if you win, you've automatically lost money, and it all depends on how much. But let's talk about something else. You've helped many people with your deck designs. I would like to know two of the best decks you've helped design to help other people win. Well, I mean, probably the most famous is Napster, which was the deck that John Finkel used to win the 2000 U.S. National Championships. I'm very I remain very proud of that one. Um, I don't know, Andre Coimbra, 2009 world champion, played the deck I designed, uh, Annihilate Saber. 
Those would be two decks, Robert. Do people ask you for your decks, or how does that work to get one of your decks to use in a major tournament? Well, well, I can tell you, you would. I can tell you the stories behind both of those situations. Yeah, I'd like to know, so, especially about the deck you probably talked about already with Finkel, but I'd still like to hear it myself. All right, so uh, um, I won a local tournament with Napster. Um, it was my first year living in New York, and I oh, know actually it was the second year I had living in New York. Uh, and John had actually he was wasn't really into magic at the time. Uh, and he was just, like, thinking about quitting magic. And this is 2000, all right? So, and you think of John being retired now. So um, so he decided he was going to... John and the OMS brothers and I were hanging out at neutral ground. I was like, oh, I won a local tournament with this deck, and I think it's really good. And, and these are its weaknesses, but I think it's really good, so... We played a total of between seven and ten games with me playing Napster and John playing uh, Fairies, Green, maybe a blue deck, and I won, all, I won all the games. And John said, let's just draft. We're just going to draft until Nationals. Uh, we're just going to play that deck, and it's stupid to not play that deck. Hmm. <laughs> so everyone was on Napster. I mean, we tuned it a little bit uh, between that day uh, and, and Nationals, but he's just like, it just crushes everything. Well, we shouldn't play anything else. And then, in the case of Andre, um, I've been working loosely with Andre on decks for a while. Uh, he was prim- my primary bullet in, uh, in a fair number of Pro Tours. And Andre, it was his last Pro Tour. He had, it was not qualified with the Pro Tour anymore. He had one left on his levels. And he was working really hard as a professional poker player. So I called him up, and I was like, Andre, I don't know if you, wanna, if you want a deck for this Pro Tour. Uh, but I am 100% sure that I made the best deck uh, of the format. And he's like, 100%? I'm like, I am one... I literally said to him, I am 100% sure this is the best deck in standard. And um, the reason was I played on Moto and I had not lost the match. And I was just crushing Jund over and over again. And he's like, well, thank you for your generosity. You know, Thank you for helping me with decks for however many years we've been working together. But you know, I have certain goals in poker, and... I'm going to make my end-of-the-year goals. I, I have to play through that weekend, but thank you. And uh, then flash forward, it's like Saturday night of Worlds, and BDM calls me, and he goes, Andre needs help. And I'm like, what do you mean Andre needs help? He's, he's like, he made the top eight, and he needs sideboarding help for tomorrow. And I'm like, he made the top eight? He told me he wasn't playing. So <laughs> I didn't even know. I, I, I was like out with my family all weekend. I did not even know Andre was in... in um, the, uh, in the Pro Tour until he was actually playing in top eight. And, uh, I mean, contrast, I'd usually, like, you know, he was playing, a, uh, in Berlin, he was playing a blue deck I made. And the blue deck only had one bad matchup, which was which was Elves. But Elves was a really bad deck. That was your bad matchup for that Pro Tour. <laughs> there were, like, six Elves decks in the top eight. And it, the, the sad thing about it is we could have changed literally two cards, and he would have had a, a very good Elves matchup. But um, right before the Pro Tour, Andre was like, uh, I think we should add, uh, you know, I think it was like Engineer Explosives and Chalice of the Void or something. And I'm like, for what? He's like, for Elves. I'm like, Elves, is that even a real deck? Or I got Crush Zoo. The best deck ever against All in Red. What, what's Elves? He's like, all right, yeah. I mean, I just heard that there people might play Elves. And I'm like, our deck's good against Affinity. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, well, we probably should have added those two cards. Because <laughs> I'm like, uh, 
Unders, I think, X and one. On day one, he played against, had to play against LSV in the last round. Okay. And you know how LSV did that tournament. Yes. <laughs> so, anyway, so, um, and it turns out, Andre was just, like, just burned out on poker, and the pro tour was in Rome, and he lives in Portugal. It's not, not too far away. He's like, you know what? Screw it. Mike said he has 100% sure that he had the best deck. Guess I'll just play it. And, but um bump 72 hours later, he was the world champion. And he didn't even ask how to fine-tune it or anything like that until he got to the top eight. That's pretty amazing, considering normally if you're interacting like someone with that, you're working up to the day before the tournament going, well, we might want to play these cards on the sideboard or so on and so forth. I don't know if you are aware with the definition of 100% sure it is. Okay, what is that? <laughs> Come on, tell me what this is. I'm just joking. I'm no, no, no. I, was, I was sure these are the right cards. Like, yeah, I don't lose at all, so just play it. And it was right. How? In that case, it was right. Okay. How often do you get to that point of you feel your deck is maybe not 100, but that you're in a position where that deck will win versus the metagame? I, I think I would prefer to answer that question a little bit different way. Okay. Which is that... In the vast majority of tournaments that I personally play in, I feel that I have the best deck. That doesn't mean that I have 100% likelihood of winning the tournament, but I pretty much won't play in a tournament if I don't have what I think is the best deck. Just not worth my time. Like, I have to cash in wife points to play in magic tournaments, so um, I, I, there's just no point to it if I'm going to play, like, some abridged deck, you know? Uh, and so that's how I that's how I approach it. Now, what I think of as the best deck is probably different than what the average person thinks of as the best deck. Um, like you like you asked earlier, in general, I think I have better information than most people, and part of that is because the way I think about magic differs greatly than how most people think about magic. Like I don't settle I don't settle for mediocrity, like in in my thought processes about magic. So. A lot of the time, if you ever read, if you ever read anybody, I don't care how smart they are, say things like, you know, we can't go any further here, we couldn't do any better. That's the time when a great deck designer actually has the greatest opportunity to innovate. So uh, I'm just thinking back to, to the World Championships that Andre won. So many great players from both the United States and Japan were just slinging junt. They were like, we can't figure out anything better than this. We're just going to play junt. And it wasn't the right deck. It wasn't the best deck. And, you know, it was just so clear, like, Coinbird just slashed through all the junt decks in the top eight. I think he beat Right Bower 3-0. Um, and Right Bower had reasonable lands and spells draws all three games. Um, and so... You know, I'm not always successful. I don't win every tournament, but I wouldn't win every tournament if I played Jund either. You see where it's coming? Like, yeah, absolutely. But does that indicate that the people that are playing Magic don't have ability to look beyond what the best deck is to see quote the best deck? Oh no, or I, something like that. I don't think that that's the case at all. I think that I think that people have there's you know, everyone has working definitions for whatever it is there they're doing in their lives, you know, like from, you know, what's a successful day to you? What's a successful interaction with your wife? What's a successful interaction with your child? What's a successful, um, you know, day at the office? How about uh, what's a good time or too long of a time for your commute in the morning? 
know, these like, we all work under certain parameters and definitions for everything that we operate by. My personal opinion is that most people, their standards are too low. So their standards are too low, and so they settle for something that's less than what they could have. And their standards are too low in many different areas in their lives, not just about magic. And that doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means that their standards are too low. Like, um, you know, you could they might have all the potential and talent and intelligence in the world, but, you know, you're willing to settle for the 52nd percentile. And you, you're, you're saying to settle for the 52nd percentile, and we all fall short of things. Nobody's perfect, so you're going to hit, like, the 37th percentile. Congratulations. Is like, that, is that they, among the stupidest no. things I can think of is people who are like, uh, this deck is good. It, has, it goes 50% with the field, you know, 55% with the field. Your expected value going 55% with the field is 4-4 four and four in an eight-round tournament. I, that's just... How low can your expectations be in life when you're like, I'm going to go in an eight-round tournament and I hope to go four and four? That's what you are doing when you when you choose a deck that's 50% against the field. Isn't that the same problem when people say, I will just be happy to make day two of a tournament instead of saying, I'm here to play to win? I also think that that's bad. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, you're setting yourself up to potentially not even make day two. Because if you're going, oh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay. I, mean, I try really hard to have my criteria for a tournament to be first place. That's what that's what I'm shooting for. That's not what my level of satisfaction in life is going to be, but that's what my goal is for this activity of the tournament. Now, obviously, you know, probably 85% of the time or more, I don't achieve that level of success. I have actual different working working criteria for what makes me happy or sad with my play, which I can go into in a bit, but that's different from your goal setting. My goal setting is to win. Now, one time I can think of, which is like, I had a good enough rating to be qualified for the pro tour, but the problem was of the, Q, of the is it K value? K value of a tournament that I had won changed from 32 to 24K. So I needed like two wins in a PTQ, which is like a 32K tournament. Mm-hmm. to lock in a Pro Tour invitation. So I'm like, my goal is to go 2 on a PTQ. So I won the first round, and the second round I drew on time. So like now I'm in the situation where like, not like a draw is catastrophic to me. Not only did I not only did I not get 2-0, but I might be worse points than I was, you know, before I won my last round when I got some tiny amount of points from someone. Because when you're when you're playing in a tournament that's a 32K and you're rated almost to be at the uh, Pro Tour cutoff, the average player that's, that you're playing against is probably rated in excess of 200 points less than you. So I'm like, it, so a draw can be catastrophic. What if there's a, if, think about it like this. Someone could be, have a reasonable rating of like 1750 and be rated 300 points less than you. A draw is pretty catastrophic. Like, so I'm like, all right, now I have to try to win the tournament. <laughs> I have no choice. I just screwed myself. So five wins later, I'm like 6-0-1, or maybe like 6-1-1 one one or something like that. And so like I have a different group. No, 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 I had to win the last round. So I'm like probably five. I've won and one at this point. So I, I probably took a loss. And But since I, I, I have to make a decision, I'm like, if I leave the tournament now, I don't know what my rating is. Ford said, I think you only have one choice. You have to try to win the PTQ. Long story short, I didn't win the PTQ, and I went back and checked my rating. I was, like, negative 32 points. And that's on a day when I had, like, several wins. So, anyway, long story short, shooting for 2-0 was not a 
was not a good enough criteria. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of, of the Pro Tour, what makes a great pro, and what ability do they have that most others don't? Um, I think the biggest one that they have is that they're willing to limit their universe. Um, magic is an area where creativity is rewarded. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a testament to that. Uh, you know, Kyle Sanchez, Patrick Chapin, there's tons of players who are creative and successful in different different facets of magic by being creative. But in terms of being <clears throat> Uh, an executor, a bullet, a gun, in on a pro tour, you have to be able to limit the things that you're that you are uh, that you're willing to do. Uh, and it's like I said before, they're not stepping out into traffic. Yes. Or there'd be a flamboyant player like John Finkel. They step into traffic in such an outlandish way that it's correct that <laughs> they stepped into traffic just then. You know, like they saw something, they knew there was going to be like a traffic jam, or they knew that there was going to be a like. But they could see, like, at the end of that movie, Limitless, like, what was going to happen from three different blocks coming in towards the same intersection. They step into traffic at just the right moment that, like, uh, a truck full of gold upends and they stuff their pockets with money. You know, like, that would be, in a, of, of the millions and infinite different possibilities that you can have, they pick that minute to step into traffic. But for the most part, the good pros are not stepping into traffic. I think that is the one... The one biggest thing. Another thing is that they, that they, for the, the, the successful ones, I think for the most part, do a better job of deck selection. Um, uh, Johnny, Johnny and I had a rule. It's just, it's called the, the minimum level of competency. Picking the right deck is the minimum level of competency. Like, you don't get that right, you're not gonna have a good day. For the most part. Perfect example is go to a pro tour. You have to have the limited deck that you have to play, the, the, all the different varieties of decks you have to play, and you have to be able to match up each one of those versus the metagame. That has got to be tremendously difficult. Yeah, not everybody can do it, but you ask me how, what's the difference between a pro or a successful pro and a dude off the street? Yeah, I agree, the dude off the street can't do that correctly. But if you want to distinguish yourself and, and, and do well at, at this particular thing that all of us love, no one would be listening to this podcast if we weren't interested in this particular awesome sure. game. You know, you have to have you have to acquire skills that the average on the street doesn't have, and anyone can build them. It's like I said earlier, you could win a pro tour qualifier. I'm sure of it. You just got to put the you just got to put the effort in. You know, and you have to be lucky. But actually, Tom Ross can win a he's like he can win a, a PTQ losing the die roll every round. That dude must be fierce at magic. He's also a nice guy. <laughs> but I mean, losing the die roll is so catastrophic in magic. Like, I totally admire someone who, like, wins a PTQ losing nine die rolls. That has to be amazing. Now, you've talked before about certain people in Magic having superpowers, the ability to see things that are happening ahead of time or other things like that. Who is an example today of someone who has that ability? Oh, the only one I know of that's active on the Pro Tour today is probably Brad Nelson. Um, but I... I I, I haven't played actively on the Pro Tour since my son has been alive, which is four years now. So there could very well be other superhumanly powered individuals. And what I think of as my generation, you know, I can think of someone like Bob Maher or Gabriel Nassif who have abilities far beyond the can of normal men. But um, but uh, I, I would say Brad Nelson among this among this generation. He was really on 
uh, when I met him in real life for the first time at U.S. Nationals last year, like, he worked me so bad, and, like, I don't even know if he worked. It's so natural to him that I don't even know that he worked me, and I, I don't even know that he knew that he worked me. And, like, it was just so natural to him. And you watch Brad play from afar. Like, he snaps his cards down. Like, there's a physicality to his play. Like, he casts a long shadow over the table. Like, he owns it. It'd be like, when you watch the Pro Tour Finals between um, Jan-Maritz Merkel and uh, and Willie Edel, and Willie Edel has the draws to beat Merkel every game, but Merkel just takes takes the whole table. Like, like Edel's part of the play man belongs to Merkel. And then, like, Edel is just complicit in Merkel taking control of the entire table, and he just shrinks off into a corner. He has the cards to win, but Merkel has already beaten him before they even cast the first spell. And that's like that's what Brad has. Like, uh, so I'm playing against Brad, and then we're we're playing a team. It's actually this whack team draft. So like on random teams, I'm on the same team as like Brad and Brian Cole, but like, and then like the OMCG Taps guys are on the other teams, and Brad's like, no, no, this is not kind of how it's gonna be. So he makes team captains of Joey and Joe, and, you know, they pick teams, and we're on different teams. So I win my first round because I was really good at that at that draft format last year. So I'm playing against Brad, and then so I go, so I go, uh, what's he got? And then, and then so Brad goes, and I, I've never actually met Brad formally, right, at this point. Like, this draft that we're doing together is the first time we've had any, you know, human interaction. Like, I think I might have talked to him on the Internet before, but... Like, in one sentence, he's like, do you really need an edge that much? Here's my deck. And he, like, turns his deck over upside down, slams it down in front of me. And he goes, go on. Do you really need the edge? Just go look at it. By the way, my name's Brad. And he sticks out his hand and shakes my hand. Like, on one thing. And then I, and like, and I just lost. I lost because I didn't look at his deck. By not looking at his deck, I admitted that Brad was right. Like, all I did was ask, like, what Brad had of my teammate who Brad had just beaten, which is a common thing to do in a team draft. Absolutely. You know? But he just completely worked me. I, he gave me his deck. I should have picked it up and looked at it. And our match was close. Brad won, but, like, it was, like, super close. But he had, I mean, and I don't know if it had actually affected my plays very much. Like, I had a slow mana draw. But, but like, I will always remember that as long as I play Magic, which hopefully is the rest of my life. The time that I met Brad, and he just... He just destroyed me on frame. It's like I really, really admire that. Like not every player can do that, and it was so natural to him. You know, that's why I said earlier: when you're good at something, it seems effortless to other people. Even if you put a lot of effort into it, we don't need to see that. People don't need to know how many hours I put into the good articles versus how many hours they put into the articles that they don't like. You know, honestly, I put a lot of work into the articles they don't like, probably too. And like, but it doesn't matter. You know, all that matters is the thing that I put out. I, I, me going on telling this Dobbs story about how many hours I put into the, into the article, that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is whether or not the article is good. What's interesting is the content of the article, hopefully. I don't know how many, how many hours Brad spent in front of a mirror, you know, saying, look through my deck, how my name is Brad. Probably was none. But he's like, he got me good either way. It's, in, it's almost like it's instinctive to him to be able to say, okay, here, take a look. To a bravado, I think it's just the fact that when you're in situations where you you know that you should win, you don't mind people doing that because you think you have an advantage already built in. Well, speaking of winning and something you seem to do an awful lot is you win an awful lot of the Pro Tour drafts. Actually, you say you won all of them. I think I've won all of them, yeah. And including the last one where you made one pick and then made all your picks afterwards and picked, I believe, what, two of the top eight? 
It might have been three. I mean, I really wanted to pick Fujita, but I wasn't sure if he was going to attend. Because yeah. even though he's been Hall of Fame, he hasn't been attending. Um, so I picked Shiroshi Ikeda, who it turns out he wasn't even qualified for the Pro Tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a lull. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I easily locked that one. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I do have a secret sauce to how to pick players. Like, well, first of all, I have the opportunity to pick LSB first. Obviously, I'm going to pick LSB. Um, so uh, that was one thing. Uh, and then, you know, when I when I won the last time, really subtle things. Like, I took Josh Utter-Layton very early. Like, and, like, for example, like Teddy Card Games, like, you know, that was a stretch. You could have gotten him later. I'm like, I don't know that I could have gotten him later. I'm pretty sure that Chapin would have taken it. Huh. If, if, you know, if I didn't take him. And it mattered that I got Josh Utter-Layton instead of David Ochoa, because Josh Utter-Layton finished in the top 16 instead of, in like, uh, instead of, like, 17th or something, or 18th. And that pro tour point that he got in the top 16, as opposed to having a little bit lower tier, made it so that um, I was in a really good position to win the draft because multiple of us had multiple pets and people in the top eight. And I took Guillaume Matignon with my fifth pick. Like, that's pretty it's pretty savage, right? I took Guillaume Matignon. He won. The, he won. Yeah. You know, like, he's a really not obvious pick, right? So I, I use a lot of information at hand. So for one thing, I noticed that the formats that Matignon did well were based on having, like, we're based on having um, good technology. And, for example, he played Pyromancer Ascension before it was cool uh, to make the French national team. Um, so Worlds is a multiple uh, multiple constructed event. So uh, players with, with with good technology are a little bit better than players who are just, like, if you have a choice of like, a bunch of different good players, you should pick the players who have better technology connections because there's two constructed formats at Worlds. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, as a general rule of thumb, but uh, yeah, that's also the reason why I picked Josh Utter Layton because he had the best thing at U.S. Nationals last year. So it's like technology is really, really important at Worlds. So for Worlds picks, yeah, it's just obvious. Um, I think I took Martin Jews at first pick. Like there's only like a handful of players that you can actually take with the early picks. And I think Juzo was my best available choice. Like I would have taken Brad first pick if I had the option or LSB, but none of those guys made top anyway, um, but I thought I thought that was a defensible pick. Um, and then I think Phil Napoli got Kibler, and he did so well early; it looked like he was gonna gonna do well. But but anyway, long story short, no, Kibler was way in front at the time, and then all suddenly it... at the time, yeah. But the other, there was one player I really wanted to take, which was um, which was Eric Froelich, but I only have five picks, right? So and I took both David Williams and uh, Andre Coimbra, and they were both playing my deck, so. I figured they would have uh, to be in good position, and had to use had to use picks on them. Um, but I would have taken Ian Efro also made top eight, so he was actually on my super short list. But um, I knew that I wanted to. So one thing is being forthright. So I knew that I wanted to take Josh Ritter Layton. So I had I took him with my second pick, and the reason I just I was not gonna, he was not going to come around, and I knew that I wouldn't have to pick aggressively on Coimbra or Williams. So. And then I just got Matignon. And if I hadn't got Matignon, I would have picked Ethro. I would have also been in good position. So uh, that was that. Uh, in this, the one that I most recently won, uh, I knew going in. I, first of all, I got LSB. That was a gift. Um, so, like, obviously, uh, he made top eight, and he's the Stones. Um, so, there, like I said, there's only a, a, not even a half a dozen players that you can take with your first pick. And LSB is the best of those, of those players, I think. Um, so then, next, like, I knew I was going to take Go, 
for sure I was going to take Go, and I knew for sure I was going to take Shields, and I was pretty sure that no one was going to take either Go or Shields. So, and it was obvious that you should take Go and Shields because they're the American Grand Prix winners. So, winning American Grand Prix is just like, of course you should take them. They have the best pedigree. Um, next, uh, are, um, I knew that I wanted to take uh, one, if not two, Japanese players because it's in Japan, and Japanese players have a huge advantage in Japan uh, by being not jet-lagged. So I took Mihara because he was doing really well already on on the Grand Prix circuit at the time. So I was like, well, of the available Japanese, which ones can I take? And I was like, oh, I think Mihara's a good pick. And then I would have taken, I honestly would have taken Shoshu Fujita, but I wasn't sure he was going to play. Instead, I took a player who wasn't even qualified, and I still had two or three players in the top eight. Um, so... But then I have one overarching rule, which is the same rule that I use for people who I will work with in Magic, not just people I will pick in Pro Tour Draft. Okay. I will never take a player that I will not root for. Interesting. If I'm not, so if I will not root for you, I will not pick you, no matter how good you are. So um, you talked about picking players, and you mentioned LSV numerous times. What makes him so great at Pro Tour events? I mean, he's just an animal. Like his run, I think it was San Diego, the one that he played uh, Tom Ross's Naya deck. He's just unprecedented. He, like, broke Ryan Fuller's streak. I mean, he's just an animal. He's so good at magic. Like, what's flabbergasting to me is the morons who are like, we're like, oh, yeah, LSD's not that good anymore. By what By what criteria? He just doesn't travel to every Grand Prix in, in Southeast Asia. It doesn't, or, like, you know, in Oceania. It doesn't mean he's not good. He's actually awesome. I'm, uh, I, I'm the kind of person, I focus on inputs, not on outputs. So a lot of people are like, oh, you should do this, and then they just name a bunch of outputs. And the outputs are like, in, in Magic, there's a lot of skill that, so it's what drives outputs. But there's also a lot of luck. I don't think that there's a huge difference between players who make a whole bunch of top eights and players who make a whole bunch of top 16s. Like, that's my opinion. And, I mean, I don't know if it's widely held, but you know, the player who's like, you know, who's like 20 or 30 top 16s over the course of his career and no top eights, that dude's just unlucky. He's not not as good. Just unlucky, and you have to focus on the you have to focus on the inputs. That guy who has a ton of top 16s is much more likely to make uh, to make the solid play on a more consistent basis than a player who has maybe two top eights but no no other quote good finishes. Like that player who has two top eights and no other good finishes with a similar you know or like you know, his top 64s, day twos, etc. But not like a consistent couple of dozen top 16s, top 32s. The difference between those players is that player who has two top baits, he had the nuts deck. He had the hookup from a good friend who happened to be, like, one of the best deck designers in the world, and he did it twice. And that is not a function of how good that player is. It's a function of how good his friend was. What about the fact that you talked about inputs versus outputs? Can you give us more examples of inputs? Yeah, what matters is if they're, like, like I said before, there's only one thing that matters at any given point in Magic game. It's if you make the right play. You want to pick the players who you think are most likely to make the right play. Second of all, you want to pick the players who are, who are operating at the highest level of technology. So, a lot of time in life, we talk about things which are resources. Resources are so, they're like fungible. They don't even matter. Like, if I said to you, if I said to you four years ago, Beanie. Yes. I will sell you the website myspace.com for $12 million. You would do everything in your power to get $12 million because you're the only dude on the planet who could buy MySpace for $12 million. MySpace at the time, four years ago, had like 75% of all, all, the, all the ads on the Internet, all the display ads on the Internet were on MySpace. Oh, my God, $12 million. 
man, I can't MySpace. If I told you today I will sell you MySpace for $12 million, you'd tell me to go kill myself. Didn't, like, some famous, like, actor or musician, I think he bought it for, like, $4 million or something like that? Something. I think I think JT bought it for 6 Okay, I 6 think, I think it was 6 Okay. But if I, you see what I'm saying? Like, four years ago, I said, you could buy MySpace for $12 million. I mean, I'd be undervaluing it by a factor of, like, 200 or something, right? Huh. Yeah. And it sold for half that much this year. Um, but that's how everything is. I bought Bane Slayer Angel after Andre won World Championships. I'm like, you know, this seems like a card that I'm going to need. So I bought Bane Slayer Angel for $55. What are they, like $5 now? Maybe $9? And I was happy to buy it for $55. I was like, I have to buy this, you know? The idea that magic cards are overpriced is a myth. I bought Baneslayer at an inflated price, but I chose to do that, and I'm not bitter that it went down in price. I have tons of wastelands that are worth way more than I paid for them. You know, like, it, it's just, there's ebb and flow to resources. These are just resources. These are things that pass between people, or they sit in a box, or, you know, they could be dollar bills, or they could be patches of land. Those are just resources. What matters, well, actually, resources matter, you know. You need to have a certain level of money, or you will not be happy. But what really matters is, in terms of of what we can focus on and what we can use to improve our lives and improve our games is what level of technology we're operating in. So, like, that's what I said about about picking about picking Pro Tour players. I try very hard to pick Pro Tour players who, who have better technology. And the reason is leveraging technology is so much more massively powerful than any amount of resources. I'll give you a really easy example from your own life. So you do this podcast. You love doing this podcast now, I assume, right? Absolutely. And um, so you said to me in a different conversation, you know, I wish I had done this earlier. I wish I had done this earlier, and then I would, you know, I would be a big name like Book. But if you had done the same thing when I started podcasting, you wouldn't have had an MTG cast to, to acquire an audience. You wouldn't have all these people like, you know, Louis Scott Vargas and Tom Martell and George Baxter, uh, who are, you know, Rich Hagon. Who are, who are flocking your podcast to be a guest, you wouldn't have had that if you didn't have the technological platform that allowed you to have it. If you were just podcasting, you were podcasting out of your basement on a small site that no one ever heard of, you would have just gotten frustrated by your inability to attract big-name guests, and you would have quit. So the technology that let you that let you become successful. Absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, your passion and your, your, your willingness to put your shoulder to the grindstone had a big part to do with it, but you would not have had the capability of doing that if you didn't have a, the level of technology that you're operating in. So, no, absolutely agree. Uh, so, um, you know, we strive to make the right decision in every situation in terms of how we play a game. But think about how much better our decisions can be when we have better technology. That, that's the other thing. So, you know, I can make I can make the right decision, and you know, I have the choice between three different decisions, and one of them's a two out of ten, one of them's an eight. Out of 8 out of 10, and one of them's a 9 out of 10. Well, if I make a mistake and then make the mistake that's an 8 out of 10, that's not a catastrophic mistake. It's only slightly worse than the 9 out of 10. Now, the 2 out of 10, I think, is the first one I said. I mean, that's a really bad play relative to a 9 out of 10. But when you have a, a lower level of technology, you're, you're like, like if I got, a, I got a 0 out of 10, a 1 out of 10, and a 2 out of 10, all of a sudden your best option is the worst option on the other, on the other option, um, if you had a different deck. It makes a huge difference in the grand scheme of things. It makes a huge difference. Your, your level of technology makes mo- is more important than anything else because it changes how good every decision that you can make by, like, a m- massive magnitude. Um, I think what was great about Cobblade was that it brought together all of these things that 
that other decks at the time and very few decks in the history of Magic have been able to put together. One thing, Callblade is almost like a combo deck. What, what I say it's almost like a combo deck, what do I mean? Like, Callblade has so much room to do all of the things that it wants to do that decks, quote, like Callblade want to do because it constricts the stupidest part of its deck, which is creatures, down to four slots. So other decks that want to do things that like Callblade wants to do, maybe ten slots, and we call the swords are basically like creature extensions, right? Yeah. So other decks want to do things like Callblade do. They have to spend way more than ten slots, and their slots are expensive. They've got, like, Sun Titans or Consecrated Sphinxes or God knows what else, and they cost a heck of a lot more than two mana. Callblade can piggyback on all eight of its twos, and they all... I'll draw extra cards. There's this massive technological leap when we go from any other deck to Callblade, because Callblade constricts all these things that the decks don't really want. It makes them into a small package, and it uses those cards to such great effect. It leverages so many cards and so many options from a small number of cards. So think about it like this. I only have one creature in my opening hand, but if that creature is a Squadron Hawk, it's three creatures. It's four creatures. And I only needed to spend one slot on it. That's why it explains it's so good, because of the fact it provides it at such a low cost. It has room to do all the things it actually wants to do. It can play plentiful lands. It can play all these card-drawing spells. You know, there's called, uh, Edgar Flores, he played like... Four mana leak, four spells near four into the royal. He had so much room for whatever he wanted to do with his deck because he had to spend so little room on attacking people. You know, the, uh, I like to say that High Tide is the greatest control deck of all time. And you're like, well, that's crazy. High Tide's a combo deck. Yeah, kind of. But really, what is High Tide? It's nothing but mana acceleration and card drawing. It's everything every, every control player's ever wanted. And it constricts the mediocrity of actually having to kill your opponent to, like, one card. Like, I have 59 cards of the things that I want to do, and one card for killing you. That's what that's what's beautiful about it. So, I mean, like, that's technology. You know, if you don't have, you know, the, the, the leaps required to build your deck in this incredibly different way. And you're stuck with the deck that has clunky draws, right? Nobody wants to see a Sun Titan in their opening hand. I played a lot of Sun Titans. You don't want to see it in your opening hand. <laughs> you know, it doesn't do anything. But you got to play a bunch of them if you want to draw one. But let's talk about other things that have been an influence in your life. Would you ever work for Wizards of the Coast? Why or why not? I mean, I sure, surely I would. Uh, but it depends on what position they offered me, right? Like, I probably wouldn't go work there to, you know, anything other than something that, that really really tweaked me, um, and probably depends on what I could be working on. Um, and it also depends on what stage of my life I'm in, I think. Like, I, would, I doubt very highly that I would leave the life that I have right now to work at Wizards of the Coast for almost any position. Like, uprooting my family in the situation that we're in, it's a pretty good situation in New York City, and um, I'm, I'm in a, on a pretty good uh career position and so on, like, I don't, I don't doubt very highly there's any position that, that they would offer me that that I would leave for. And plus, don't forget, I have to quit playing Magic if I go there. I have to quit writing stuff for Star City if I go there. So, 
for me, there's a lot of liberty that's lost. Well, then explain to me why some of the great players have done that in the past. Why Randy Bueller, or why did all those other players leave to go work at Wizards of the Coast then? I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but my own position, um, I don't know. I mean, the um, for one thing, you know, their prospects are probably different than mine. You know, they're, they're a different place in their career. Randy developed his career at Wizards of the Coast. At the time, he was like a professional magic player. He ground out grants. You know, like going to Wizards of the Coast uh, was a was a pretty was a pretty compelling lifestyle upgrade for him. You know that, and you know he turned it into a he became a vice president at, at Hasbro. Like he did a heck of a job in terms of career tra- trajectory there. Worth Walpert's like the boss of boss of Moto now, but you know at the time that he went to go work at Watsi, you know I think he was a student. Um, it, the, I'm like way more established in my. I mean, keep in mind, like Worth and I are the same age. So me leaving the situation that I'm at right now is very different from if I'd made, if I'd been posed with a very similar decision when I was 23. You know, like uh, I don't know. Jeff and I offered me a job when I was 23, and I didn't take it then either. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, take that for what you will. <laughs> Mark Merrill said the reason why he is pulling so hard for Mike Long is that Magic needed a villain. Does Magic need another villain? Um, I I have every respect for for Rosewater. He gave me my big break as a writer, but I don't know that Magic ever needed a villain. I mean, maybe in order to create excitement around the Pro Tour, but, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. What's the definition of a villain? Like, someone who cheats? Like, I, I don't know. Like, someone who's just an asshole? Like, there's plenty of people who are an asshole, but they don't make a big deal about it on the coverage, like maybe they did with Long. There's definitely a long list of people like that, I can understand. Yeah, I mean, there's people who are, like, really unpleasant to play against who are on the Pro Tour. They're really unpleasant people that you can be in the same room with. But I don't think they make a big deal about that. Uh, and they're like, you know, and I, I don't know what other people's experience of Mike Long is. Like, I, I've met him, you know, I've played Magic with him in real life. He's actually a very charming, pleasant person to be around. Uh, so, I mean, maybe that's part of his superpowers, right? But, um, but anyway, the fact of the matter is, today, Magic in 2011, uh, as successful as it's become with the amount I've invested in it, in terms of years of my life, I, mean, I hope it doesn't need a villain. I, it's hard enough playing against the good people. Yeah. You work for Star City Games. What makes their site better than everybody else? Um, I don't work for Star City Games. I, I write for Star City Games. Oh, you write for Star City Games. Uh, yes. Like I think of like Evan Irwin or, or Steve Satan just working for Star City Games and me, me for, and me, you know, flipping, flipping by Star City Games. What makes their site better than everyone else? I mean, it's pretty simple. What do you think makes their site better than everybody else? Well, it's the people, it's the content you get from it, the writers. And in my case, I, I like the coverage that they provide for Star City Live and other things like that. That fascinates me a lot, too. Yeah, I mean, I think SCG Live is really, really different than other things that other sites have. It's really, really compelling. Um, like, for example, I think TCG Player missed uh, some pretty pretty amazing opportunities in terms of coverage with some of the events that they've had. It just, you know, tooting my own horn, which I want to do at times. The top eight that, that I won uh, in the New York 5K that I won was amazing. A Grand Prix champion, Grand Prix top eight player, and the biggest star in the Star City Tour were my top eight opponents. 
Um, which, you know, and then, like, you know, I'm a Magic's most beloved underdog, or at least that's what it says on on the cover of my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, it's a, yeah, that, that would have been a great opportunity to, to leverage some, some, some established personalities in the, in the game. So I do think that the SCG live coverage is really, really different in, in distinguishing for Star City that other sites don't have. I, I think, I think that particularly the emphasis on legacy that, uh, the Star City Open Series has, has generated is something far different and powerful. Um, and I mean, I think it's a good example of Pete Hufflin's genius around utilization of technology. Uh, but you know, before that, I think that what's, what probably got Star City to the point that it could do those really interesting things was, you know, I think we have the strongest writing force on the, the current, the current incarnation of the magic internet. I think that's not a stretch. Uh, people are willing to shell out cash money to read Jerry Thompson. And yourself. Patrick Shade. Yeah. Yeah. occasional V. Moshowitz. Now, you have, uh, you are an outspoken critic of the award show that I kind of pseudo created last year. What do you think could have been done to improve it? What do you mean by an outspoken critic? Where, where was I speaking out? Uh, you spoke about it on, on one of your podcasts. Oh, I mean... You made, one, a, uh, you made a comment about it being that, you know, what was the criteria, where did the people come from, where did the questions come from, things like that. I think, if I recall, the, the uh, there are questions that you ask that anyone can ask, that if you ask a particular question... It's obvious that what you're asking is not what you're ostensibly asking, and in fact, you're not qualified to be asking the question. So let me take this into a, a different realm for a second. I think you'll understand what I mean. Okay. Um, there's a notion of flouting fashion and flouting convention, and some people try to do it. Or like, you could just go to like any random gaming hall and see people who are very badly dressed, right? And they just look like ridiculous, like a clown. Now. If you go to an awards ceremony and you see Gwen Stefani, Gwen Stefani dresses differently than everybody else, but she is an absolute master of fashion. The way she dresses shows that she understands all the rules, but she's better at it than everybody else, so she can break particular rules in particular combinations and look better than everyone else, despite the fact that she's not obeying any of the rules. Like, I think Gwen Stefani is an amazing example of that. But there are tons of people at those same award ceremonies who get it wrong. And they get it wrong badly. Now, <clears throat> some of the questions that, that you asked in your award ceremony and some of the options that are given for the people that are available, you're just like, I don't even know why you're asking this question. I can't give you the right answer. So be like, Mike, uh, what is 2 plus 2? Is it 0, 6, or 17? <laughs> well, 2 plus 2 isn't 0, 6, or 17. I cannot pick the right answer. It's not here. So, like, when you have things for, like, who's the best podcaster, and Brian David Marshall isn't one of the available options, like, you know, if Brian David Marshall is better than everybody on the list that you had. Like, it, it that's, it, it, it's, it calls into question, should anyone answer any of these questions? You have, like, who's the best, who were, who were the choices for best deck designer of the year? Like, Patrick Chapin wasn't on the list. Was Jerry on the list? Um, like, was Tomohiro Saito on the list? 
I mean, like, Conley won. I'm yes. a huge Conley Woods fan. He is not a better deck designer than... He is a memorable deck designer. And when Conley gets something right, it is freaking memorable. That's his charm. His charm is that he is not, quote, as good as some of the other guys. He does a lot of things right. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, I'm a huge Conley Woods fan. But the only reason I'm a Conley Woods fan is because he's outlandishly different. If he's... And he, I think Conley's like about as good as a rogue could be because he's so roguish. He's like uncompromisingly roguish, and he get he could still get it pretty much right. But he, that doesn't make you the best deck designer. What makes you the best deck designer is putting up Ws. Who puts up more Ws than Jerry? And, and whatever it was last year, it's like you. I don't was V on the list. Mm. I mean, you had like AJ Soccer and Conrad Kolos on the list, and I'm I'm a fan of both of those guys. But, like, they don't belong on the list. That's, like, a ludicrous list. Why, why, why is Patrick not on the list? The thing about it is, is I limited my resources on this to other people within the podcasting community, which might not have been the best selection if had I approached this from now having contacts within the professional community. I could have approached some people saying, I'm looking for input on this. What do you think? I think it's about that. You... you any, anyone who writes anything down, anyone who publishes something, has a gigantic ego. You can write something down into your journal with the intention, with the, no intention of anyone ever reading it. You have a gigantic ego, and your ego is saying, I am writing down something that is important enough to be commemorated for X. And X can be forever, or X can be for next week. But whatever I'm writing down is important enough to be commemorated. And I can go back and read it. And I mean... When I was like a teenager journaling, I would go back and read my journals, and sometimes I would laugh, and sometimes I would cry, and whatever. Hormones from when you're 14. But you already take the step. You take the step forward. You decide you're going to do this award show. You do it in a place that thousands of people can see it. For one thing, I don't know if it's just bad judgment that you're conceding all of the agency to people who obviously do not have a scrap of sense between them, if these are some of the options that are, that are going on. But if you're going to take that agency, you can't then say, well, look, I'm going to I'm gonna concede all of this. Like, if you're going to go do this, what you should do is say, I have a gigantic ego. I'm doing this. I'm commemorating this thing for a year. I'm going to make an awards ceremony. In fact, I'm going to recruit people to present awards. I mean, I listened to the whole thing. I thought Joey and Joe's was good. They were ridiculously good. It's like, you know, you're going to do this. There's a lot of pomp and circumstance around this. You're driving traffic to it. You're taking up space on the Internet. You're taking people's time, their only scarce resource, to look at it. You cannot then say, well, I just left it up to the podcast community. That seemed a little bit, you know, a little bit inconsistent with every other bit of what you're doing there. Do you think it would be fair if you did this and just had your own opinion on this? What's fair? Screw fair. There's no fair. There's no fair in the world. I don't even consider fair to be something to talk about anymore. I used to actually care about fair. But now, let me ask you a question. Okay. What if I said to you, Beanie, here's ten bucks. And I just shipped you ten bucks. What do you think about that? Well, the first thing you would say is thank you and then why? No, no, no. I'm just saying. I'm shipping you because I wanted to give you ten bucks. You want ten bucks? You can have it. Okay, thank you. All right. Now I'm going to propose to you a different scenario, slightly different than that, okay? All right. There's 100 bucks. Each of, each of us gets a choice, okay? There's $100. My choice is to split the $100 between me and you. Your choice is to say yes or no. If you say no, neither of us gets anything, okay? 
Understand the understand the rules? Yes. Okay. I'm going to split it $11 for you, $89 for me. Yes or no? Instinct. You're going to yes. say no. You want to say no. Yeah, I want to say no, but my instinct says yes. Of course yes. you want to say no. You know why? Because you have a notion of fair. And if I told you that first and then told you I'm giving you $10 second, you would you, you would have you wouldn't have had any hesitation about saying no. You're only saying no because I already explained to you by shipping you ten dollars in the previous scenario how stupid it is to say no. You're getting eleven dollars for free. Yes. Why would you say no? Do you yeah. see how ridiculous it is? The yeah. only reason you're like I don't want eleven dollars because it's not fair. Screw fair. Fair is stupid. Nothing is fair. Life isn't fair. Is it fair? Is it fair when somebody sits down against Patrick Chapin in the first round of a tournament and he destroys that person because his level of technology is two levels better than them? Is that fair? That kid, that kid who sits down has no chance unless Pat's mad screwed. Is that fair? Well, then the, it's not yeah, fair, yeah. and we all talk about how great Patrick is. Yes, fair is like hard work. Shut up. No fair. It's okay. pointless to talk about. All right. All right. Like it's it's incredibly pointless. You were going to turn down eleven free dollars because you didn't want it to, because it was unfair to you. Isn't that ridiculous? I'm shipping you eleven dollars for free. Okay. And then you think about it and go, wait a minute, that's eleven dollars I didn't have three seconds ago. What could I do with that eleven dollars I didn't have the opportunity to have? Oh, you, we could make it like eleven thousand dollars and eighty nine thousand dollars today. When it when it sounds like that, you're like whoa. I don't know. This seems a lot this unfair now. Yeah. It, it's like it's pointless to talk about fair. We talk about in 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 doing better at magic. We talk about edge. We don't talk about fair. Always want to have a better edge. We want to have a better angle. It's not fair. Me sitting against against Brad was it fair when he just completely worked me with his awesome brain and mouth wagging and tongue and sticking out his hand and shaking my hand. No, he destroyed me on frame. That was probably the only limited match I lost in team drafts all weekend. And like, <laughs> wasn't. But I admire it. He has a power beyond the power of any random magic player sitting down. And that has nothing to do with how he plays the cards. He, he's got something going on. It's not fair when somebody has superpowers and other persons are regular. But we talk about him because his performance is sick. We talk about Patrick because his technology is high. It's not fair. It's not supposed to be fair. I won't argue with you there. You've got a valid point with that because if everything in life was fair, why would we play anything? Or why would you even try to do anything? The other thing that I think about when you're talking about, like, oh, well, I'm going to concede this to some people for their input or, you know, all different people's input is important, that's actually not true. Like, if I were to ask you, let, we need to solve a problem about astrophysics, or we need to solve a problem about engineering, and you're like, oh, I know who to ask. Let's go call up the Taliban. You go call up the Taliban to, to solve a problem about physics? Absolutely not. Do you care what the Taliban's? Not at all. Not qualified to talk about morality and religion either. No, but we care about, but our society says, oh, you know what, we should listen to what their opinion on morality and religion is. That's what, the, that's what a piece of paper over here says. But a good sense should tell you something else. Now, 
the, the, the fact is, you don't ask the Taliban about that because they're not qualified to answer it. So you're asking people to answer a question that they're not qualified to answer. It has nothing to do with some people being in the pro community and some people being in, in the podcast community. There are people with 100 pro score points who vote wildly wackadoodle on the Hall of Fame because they don't know who the current proper players are. They stop voting at the point that they start stop seeing names that they recognize from their career 10 years ago. This is a fact. That is how some people on the Pro Tour Players Committee with 100 points vote. It has nothing to do with some people being pro, um, pros and some people being podcasters. Because I can think of a lot of podcasters who would have had a more informed, in, um, more informed input about this than some pros would on some of the categories that you're talking about. There are pros who don't necessarily listen to podcasts. The pros who don't listen to podcasts would not be able to tell you either the qualified or unqualified people that you had. As available, as available people that you could select. Because 2 plus 2 is not 17. I guess 17 is a pretty cool number. It has a 7, has a 1. 1s are straight, 7s are kind of, you know, straight on top. I can accept that. That's definitely gives me more food for thought when it comes to this. This would be interesting because nobody discusses any of this stuff. All they do is give a general, well, congratulations, Brad Nelson's Player of the Year. I don't know. I think people discuss this kind of stuff all the time. What I'm talking about... I don't know. Patrick just did an article series about who are the ten best deck designers of all time. Yeah, and speaking of that article, did you have any questions about where positioning was of certain people? Do I have any questions about it? Well, did you have any debate about it? Like, I mean, there are people who didn't make the list who should have... Uh, and there are people on the list who are probably pretty good, but probably shouldn't have made it. Isn't that subjective, though, in that case? No, I don't think so. I mean, like, I, 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 Patrick has a theory about how the voting went out, and uh, maybe he'll someday write about how he thinks the voting went out. But I, I don't think that the voting was, uh, I don't know. A lot of people who were who were asked to vote are, for the most part, pretty qualified. Um, and I think that, it's not that their opinions are wrong so much, and I totally respect many of my fellow panelists, but I think that their opinions may have been under-informed, not, not wrong. Like, for example, Brian Schneider finished outside of, uh, uh, outside of the top ten. On my list, I would have him no, no, no worse than two. I think two is the absolute worst that I would have Brian Schneider at, and he wasn't in the top ten. Um, the idea that Brian Kibler makes the top ten and Ben Rubin doesn't just shows that people don't actually know, but some people who voted know who the good deck designers are. I actually personally had both Ben Rubin and Brian Kibler in my top ten. However, to have Brian Kibler and not Ben Rubin is, it, it's like trying to think of an ingredient that's only good with another ingredient. You know, like, that's not strictly true of Brian. But um, to not have them paired is very, very suspect in terms of how the voting went. Okay. And, and the, the thing is, you can go back and look at some of these things. Some of the deck lists that are chosen are pretty much a stretch because, you know, it's hard to find relevant deck lists for some of the people who finished highly. Or, like, their deck lists are actually not that innovative. Uh, I mean, just to, just to address the forum trolls, you know, like, I think it was Evan said in a, a previous episode of the Meta Magic, like, you know, there's forum problems and there's real problems. Um, like, there's tons of people clamoring about, how is Mike Long not in the not in the top ten? 
And, like, honestly, why would he be in the top ten? It has nothing to do with his reputation, you know, like, oh, oh, he's a cheater. Well, first of all, I don't know that the people who are saying he's a cheater know that he's a cheater or not, but not that their opinion matters on this. But the but the, the real question is, why should he be in the top ten? You know who Mike Long is, right? Absolutely. Why should he be in the top ten? Play devil's advocate. Why should Mike be in the top ten? Well, success based on his career. What is success? No, no. We're talking about deck designs. I have no Pro Tour top eights. I probably, I probably should have been higher on the list than ninth. Like just straight up. I, I was, I was actually solo placed ninth, and Easy was in tenth until the last ballot came in. Huh. Um, the last ballot had Easy and not me. So. So, I mean, I honestly think I should have finished higher. But, you know, everyone in the top ten is really good. So it's not, that's not, that's not a, I mean, by the way, like, higher is, I don't even know how much higher. Like, I don't think I should have cracked the top five. But it's, uh, but Patrick thinks I should have cracked the top five. So what does that mean? Um, so anyway, so, like, play devil's advocate. You know a fair amount about magic history. You know a fair amount about magic, uh, deck design. And you've been following the game for since there was a dojo and so forth. Tell me, why does Mike Long deserve to be in the top ten? What decks has he made? This is a deck design contest, not a not a success. What are you googling it? Well, actually, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. The only top of my head, top of my head, I can think of two decks he ever made. Okay, one of them he won a pro tour with, just Prosplume. But he wasn't even the only person at the top eight with Prosplume. I don't even know if he had the best version of Prosplume. But it just happened to win the Pro Tour. It was a common deck to play in that Pro Tour. That would be like somebody, like, I don't know, like what? Well, it would be like somebody winning a Star City Open Series in the month of April with Cobblade. That's literally what Mike winning Pros with Prosplume is. He hmm. didn't, he wasn't the only person with, I don't think he made it. The cards were obvious. Every single FNM, the equivalent of FM, we had Arena League back then, had some kid playing with essentially a Prosboom deck. And I'm not saying Mike's Prosboom deck wasn't good. It might even have been the best one in the tournament. I don't know. But <laughs> I don't see how he gets credit for top-end deck designers of all time on the basis of a Prosboom deck when he wasn't even the only one in the top eight with. Well, wouldn't that be the perfect example of Kibler when he was the first one to work with Cobblade? No. But that's not the same thing at all. Kibler made that deck. Those guys made that deck, and they crushed that tournament with it. That was their tournament to crush, that team. Every other table had a Cobblade player. I mean, sorry, had a Prosboom player in Paris. It was the, the probably the most common deck on day two. He did not, quote, make that deck. He was not, quote, ahead of the curve. He might have had a slightly better list. I don't even know. I don't remember what the, what the elements that made a perfect Prosbloom deck are relative to another. You know, he didn't even have Brainstorm, as far as I can recall. I don't know. Was Brainstorm not legal? Maybe it wasn't legal on Metalstone. Because we played Brainstorm in Standard. Yeah, it was an Ice Age card. All right. Forget about the thing about Brainstorm. <laughs> but I don't know that his I don't know that his Prosbloom deck was particularly high technology relative to the fact that other people in the same tournament also had the same deck who did not work with him. And if that's his big claim to fame, let's say even if... Even if he's the only player with Prosbloom in that deck, is it more significant than Mark Herberholtz, who finished tied for last place? Mark Herberholtz has a way better deck design record than Mike Wong. Not close. And Osip uh, Levadovich, Mike Wong doesn't touch Osip Levadovich, and Osip didn't even finish in the top ten. I voted for Osip, by the way. Like, 
Ozil was a sick deck designer. He won a pro tour with, a, with very similar circumstances of Mike winning a pro tour with a signature deck. I mean, but Ozil cracked formats. Like, it, it's not subjective. Like, I, I really don't think so. So let's talk a little bit about Ozil. Um, he, like you said, he's cracked formats. He's changed different things when it comes to magic. What was it about him that made him so unique and special at his time? Osa? Yeah. He has a willingness to test that is almost unrivaled by his contemporaries as an American magic player at the time. Like, he's really willing to play this. And at the time, American magic players were like, oh, we just always wanted to draft. And I think that was really, I mean, I've worked with Osa for multiple pro tours. And, like, you know, he was part of the crew that was in and out of my apartment testing for Pro Tours. Dude could be dedicated to testing magic. Also, um, he worked with good people. So it's very much like what, like, when you interviewed Alice, he's talking about, like, the ascent of Owen. And a big part of it is, like, you know, Owen working with good people. Like, me and me and Osip, like, collaborating on decks together, a very powerful combination. Um, because, uh, like, you have some crazy and then some reigning in the crazy. Um, and, you know, Osip himself is incredibly innovative and and uh, really significant deck designer. I mean, he's probably top five deck designers all the time at sideboards. Like, he's really, really strong on sideboard. And, you know, like, I think that a lot of time people look at deck designers and they're like, they only consider 60s. And there are some deck designers who are really good at 15s. There are other deck designers like Patrick Chapin who are, like, who are like 75ers, you know? Like, Chapin will laugh. He'll say, if I don't, get, if I don't have all 75 cards, I can't even win a match. Like, he'll, he'll say something like that. Um, versus, like, a deck designer like Patrick Sullivan doesn't even really need his sideboard. Like, he, he has a sideboard because you have to have one. <laughs> you know? Like, but he, he just, he's just full of cards. And, like, he's going to win the tournament. He, just, he could probably win the same tournament without, without going to his sideboard. You know what I mean? And, like, that's a completely different, and I'm not saying, like, one is good and one is not good. I'm just saying, but they're certainly different. And, you know, the value of a good sideboard is, I think, underrated by the average pundit. And Osip is really, really good at sideboard. Um, in the Urzatron deck that he made, top eight in Honolulu with, like, he, he was the one who put the giant solifuges in that sideboard. And, and they were, you say, and they were fantastic on that weekend. But isn't that that a lot of times, in especially if you would happen to run in the mirror match, the sideboard could be the total key of beating a mirror match. You look at, like you said, Cobblade. I mean, a lot of times now, what Edgar puts in the sideboard is the difference of what breaks through a Cobblade mirror match. Well, I mean, sideboarded games are statistically more significant than main deck games. I think that's like a fundamental thing that the average player might not realize. Assuming you don't go to time in a game one, you always play a sideboarded game as well as a main deck game, but then some percentage of the time you play an additional sideboarded game. So sideboarded games are almost twice as important as main deck games. So, I mean, it's not even a question. 15s are really important. 75s are important. I mean, they're matchups that you you consistently have the right sideboard. Like, it's a literal truth that you cannot win if they outsideboard you. Now, what would you give as a suggestion for a player who is working their way up the PTQ ranks to 
improve? Like outside of grinding for you know countless hours on moto, what can they do to help themselves ascend to another level? I mean, the first, the first most important thing that they have to realize is that there's only one right play, and they should stop being clever around the question of plays. So you try to figure out what the right play is. Because they're not going to figure out the right play 100% of the time. But if they're not even trying to, that's a, they're in an even worse situation, you know? Okay. Um, I think that's like the most important thing. And repetitions will teach them maybe over time what the right play is. But that's one thing. And then the second thing, like I said before, is they should operate at the highest level of technology that they can and not settle for, honestly, mediocre decks. Okay. And the thing is that it's okay to be wrong. You know, you can you can be wrong and not succeed, but you can pick the right deck and you won't succeed the majority of the time either. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, there's many different ways to be wrong, but, you know, when you get something right and you get right something right in a significant way, that's how people get to be stars in magic. You know, and I'm not even talking about being you know, making your first pro tour or something. But, I mean, ascending to things that are really admirable positions in the game. Like, you like to talk about Conley Woods, you know. You get something right, you get something right in the Conley flamboyant way, people talk about it with much greater regularity. The average person talks about it than understanding the subtleties of Edgar Flores' Cobblade deck from week to week, despite the fact that Edgar wins at a much greater clip. What else can you tell people about what's going on with you? I don't know. That's plenty, Robert. Okay. I'm Robert for the Men of Magic, joined by Mike Flores. Thank you for listening, and until next time. Thank you for listening to the Men of Magic. You can contact me at themenofmagic at gmail.com, on Twitter under the Men of Magic, or my personal account, the Beamy. This is Robert Martin, and again, thank you for listening.